Welcome to Get After It PDX, a down-to-earth podcast featuring honest conversations with inspiring people in the creative hotbed of Portland, Oregon. Recorded live and on location in Portland, let's welcome the co-founder of Y-East Wolfpack and the host of Get After It PDX, Willie McBride. Hey folks, a quick note before we get started. The Get After It PDX podcast is brought to you by the support of our friends at the Aimsure Distilling Company, a new distillery focused on bringing people together through great flavors and a warm environment. They love the way spirits taste, but more importantly, they love what they do. Spirits bring people together to make memories, build bridges, and crystallize the moment opening up in early 2020 in Northeast Portland. Welcome everyone. We are back here at the Hoxton in the new space down in the basement in this beautiful basement bar they have. And sitting here with Sadie Lincoln, who we are absolutely thrilled to have today. Welcome, Sadie. Thank you. We're in a bar, but we're drinking coffee for the record. Oh yeah, this is morning. We are absolutely (laughs) not drinking alcohol. (laughs) Morning time. I mean, I wouldn't put it past me, but... You know, it's only 10.15, we're yeah. good, we're good. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're super thrilled to have you here today. You are the co-founder and CEO of Bar 3, mm-hmm. and you have a rich history of what led you to this spot, and um, Bar 3 has been amazingly successful and is now all over the world, is that correct? Uh <laughs> Yeah. International. It is actually beyond. Yeah, our, we have active subscribers in over 98 countries now doing our online workouts. Yeah. Well, so I would say that, that classifies global. as, as mm-hmm. global. Very cool. Mm-hmm. So we want to hear about all that, but like all our guests, we want to go back in the day and hear about sort of some of the seeds of all this stuff and how you got started. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Eugene, Oregon. Most of my childhood, I was born in Taos, New Mexico, and lived there close to five years. Nice. Yeah. So, how, what was the whole Taos deal? I've heard, I listened to your awesome podcast on how I built this with Guy Raz, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. And, and through reading other things about you, I learned that that uh, structure you grew up in in Taos was somewhat unique. Mm-hmm. It was your mother and some of her friends that moved there together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my mom and her 20s and her dear new friends all basically had kids. The dad split, so they were single moms. And they decided to raise us together collectively. We weren't in a commune, but they were experimenting with a new way of experiencing life. They dropped out. They they were part of the counterculture, if you will. And experimenting with ways to be present um, and um, create a shared experience that felt healthy and productive to them and that that's how you know that's kind of how it manifested as we all we lived in uh, various adobes uh, in Arroyo Seco which is a little kind of outside of Taos it's a beautiful community and um, often did, we didn't have electricity. It was pretty. Oh, really? Yeah. That's pretty that's rusty. Fairly rusty. I was born in an adobe uh, without electricity at home. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, all of us were born at home except for Sophia. Um, 
because they had, she had some complications with her birth, but we were all born at home, and um, we've stayed together ever since. At one point, uh, one of the moms and her kids moved to Eugene, and then shortly after, we all followed, and that's where we all ended up staying. Oh, very cool. So it must have been a pretty tight, tight friend group to stay together for so long. There's still a friend group. So I always you know, say that it's the greatest love story is my mom and her best friends because they are so close to this day. And I consider them my aunties. They're still a part of my family. They're, we're all a unit. We're all still really, really close. Wow. So you've had examples of incredibly strong female relationships of supporting each other throughout your whole life. Yeah. And I would imagine there was a pretty strong bond with nature having grown up so close to it. Yeah. So what yeah. were those years, like, from, obviously you were born there through, what age did you move to Oregon? Five. I don't have a lot of memories except for what my mom tells me, and she said it was the most amazing era of her life because it actually felt really long. Every day felt long. They gave themselves permission to truly just be in tune with whatever felt right in the moment. So you wake up in the morning, and you figure out what you're going to do, and you just ride that rhythm. And as a new mom, it's an amazing way, if you think about it, to raise children because yeah. children are naturally like that. And then we put them through this structure that society has built that's quite unnatural. Anyone that's a new mom knows what that's like. It, it, it's not right, you mm -hmm. know. Um, even me now with my kids who are teenagers, there's more emerging science about the teenage brain and they turn on at night and need to sleep later. But our school system starts at 8 a.m., which is not natural for how a teenage person's brain develops. <laughs> you know, if we if we could all be more um, in tune that way, it would. It's just a great way to live. It's a hard way to live in the way because it's so counterculture. It's mm -hmm. not what you know how um, society is set up. But my mom and and my aunties decided to do that to just go with the flow. And that meant being really resourceful about how they ate, how they lived, how they got by. Um, but really, they were creative and they didn't need a lot of money to be happy. They didn't need really any money to be happy. Oh, they garden. They, my mom said that they would go behind grocery stores, for example, and they throw out perfectly fine produce that was imperfect. You know, it was like misshapen or... Um, and that they would just grab boxes of like, like kind of the throw out food yeah. that was beautiful Dumpster and bring that home. Dumpster a, <laughs> People still do it yeah. all the time. Yeah. Uh, they shopped at thrift stores. They sewed. They, um, you know, they just kind of got by. They, might, they would have odd jobs here and there. Mm. And then just everybody would collectively put it in a pot and figure out how to grow that money. So we all had a perfectly fine life yeah you and how many siblings so um it's funny every time i'm asked this i can't remember because it's a little <laughs> fragmented but in taos there's a there was a few more but um the the core group of us is miguel chia sophia lark later kyle came um and me so there's six of us oh. yeah the word present, being present, stuck out to me. You mentioned that right away, that they were cultivating this life that made them 
be able to be more present. Mm-hmm. I know that now with bar three, and we'll talk about that progression, but mindfulness is a huge focus. So it sounds like being present in mindfulness was something that was sort of instilled in you f- throughout your entire life. Uh, yes and no. Back to the Taos days, talking to my mom about it, it, was, it wasn't it was a practice to be mindful mm. because they just were. They <laughs> yeah. were in the moment. They didn't have distractions, and they gave themselves permission to focus on what mattered most to them. And that's being present, paying attention on purpose to what matters most. So that's they, my they made life changes and choices to put them in a place where they didn't have to work at being mindful, they just were. And I think that's how we started as human beings, is in villages, in touch with nature, in touch with the natural flow of life. And that is a more rich, present life. Now, we are bombarded with distraction. And we, an emerging popularity of mindfulness is, I think, a symptom of distraction. Now, we need to practice being mindful because every all the external forces pull us from I think what we we ultimately really need as human beings and once we moved to Eugene as a family we got back in a sort of normal normal rhythm of life but we still were roommates like we kind of had different pods sharing homes and stuff mm-hmm. but we went to normal schools and uh, my mom and her friends, they all started the Eugene Weekly, which is the weekly paper. It started as What's Happening. So they were entrepreneurial. Okay. They were figuring themselves out. Um, and So that resourcefulness led right into yeah, resourcefulness of starting a business. Yeah, creation. Yeah. Creating a life that mattered to them. So the thing that, that stayed true was creating meaning in their lives and making choice based on their values versus a path that someone else told them is the right path to take. Mm -hmm. And we did have some practice as a family to stay connected. And one thing we used to do, and we still do, is we would sit in a circle Mm -hmm. and we would investigate dreams. My mom and her friends all are still really interested in union psychology and their self-studied and union psychology? Union. Uh, oh, Jungian, sorry. Yeah, yes. Carl Jung. Yeah, um, yeah. And the investigations of dream, of our dreams. So mm-hmm. in circle, often someone would share a dream, and then we would all talk about what that dream meant. And cool. it's an entry point, basically, into self-awareness and looking inside for answers. Uh-huh. So that skill was definitely given to all of us, quote-unquote, kids who are now in our, you know, <laughs> mid-age, but um, middle-aged Adults, but we we were given that that practice for sure. Very cool. And at the point of being Eugene, how many siblings was it? Was it still this large, six or seven? How many? Yeah, seven. Because because Kyle was born in the eighties in okay. Eugene. We all watched Kyle um, enter this world. We were there. It was, he was a home birth. Oh wow! Very I cool. was probably eleven or twelve, maybe. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So you'd sit around in the circle of seven kids and your mom, and did you have a father figure at any yeah, point I did. throughout this? My um, stepdad, my mom met Bill, who, uh, they're not together anymore, but for most of my life he was, in, you know, he was a part of our family. Okay. And he integrated right in with all of us. Okay, so he was mm-hmm. shared the similar philosophies. and Yeah, cool. yeah. 
So at what point did the sort of natural rebellion to some of these things, like I remember on the How I Built This podcast, you mentioned that, that like most teenagers at some point, you you push back against what you've been around. So did you push back against some of those ideals or that sort of hippie-ish lifestyle? Well, I would say I, I, I did not push back on the ideals. That's one thing I kept and the values I kept. But I was also a kid of the 80s and I just wanted to fit in, you know? Um, and be, be of the moment fashion-wise. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. so, you know, my mom was wearing Birkenstocks before they were cool, yeah. you know? Um, and those kinds of things. Like, I, I do remember being embarrassed. And I also remember more so about that we were hippies. I was embarrassed about our economic standing. Okay. And so we, you had less than other families. Yeah, I mean, we were broke. I, I, we, I, we had food stamps at times. We had government cheese in the fridge. I mean, there were points where we were pretty broke, and mm. and we were pretty broke all through middle school and high school for me. And so, me wanting to have designer jeans and like fit mm-hmm. in with the friends and have a car that didn't embarrass me, um, you know, was certainly. Uh, that's why I started working at such a young age. I was yeah. waiting tables by the time I was 14. Oh, wow. Um, was that your first job, waiting tables? No, my very first job, I started when I was, I think, eight or nine, labeling sprout containers. <laughs> um, and even <laughs> at that at that age, I wanted money. Yeah. And, and, yeah, because I wanted to be able to do, you know, cool things with my friends. Who was the uh, sprout labeling for? Uh, Steve Lebow, Sprout City. I'll never forget. He would. He was a um, friend of our family, and he would bring me a big box of plastic sprout containers and stickers. And I had a whole system. Like I was actually very organized about it. I can. And it was like it was kind of like my own little assembly line. And I would sit there at the table Mm -hmm. and just label. And and he got a really good deal out of it. He would bring me a giant box of these sprout containers, so I don't even know how many were in the box, but a lot, and I got $5 a, a box. So How long did it take you to do a box? Probably a long time. I don't remember. But you got but your systems down. Then I you did get... have a system, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I felt productive, which cool. apparently is in my personality. Yeah. <laughs> so waiting tables in high school, basically? Mm-hmm. And then what? Jamie's Great Hamburgers. Very nice. Yeah. And then, so... Where did you go to college? Did you go to college? What was after the high school years? I was not college bound. Um, I didn't even take the SATs. had no real interest. I went to Los Angeles at the age of 18 to get to know my dad as a young adult and be closer to him, my, fa- my biological, so biological father. father. And I enrolled in Santa Monica City College. From there, I transferred into UCLA two years later. Cool. And that kind of you know, sparked my education. Had you ever known your dad before? He came in and out. Mm. I The first time I remember meeting... He, I guess he came in to the picture when I was one. Okay. Um, and then he came back when I was five, and I remember meeting him when I was five. That was really weird. Um, and that was in New Mexico still? No, he came to Eugene to meet okay. me. We had just moved to Eugene. Okay. And he came, and I remember he picked me up and swung me around. And I, caught, I have a memory of seeing... We were in a hotel room and seeing in the mirror him holding me like I have this memory of that and me just thinking who is this guy like what's happening 
Um, and then he came back when I was probably about 10 to Eugene, lived there for a couple of years, trying to kind of integrate. Didn't work out. And oh, like then, actually like be with the family? Uh-huh. A little bit. I mean, oh. live in Eugene. Yeah. And then um, he... But I did, so I established a, a connection with him. I never called him dad. I called him Stephen. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I... I went and visited him on spring break, my senior year of high school. And uh, that's when I decided, I think I want to move to L.A. and get to know him. And I started to become interested in his whole side of the family and wondering, you know, who, where, I'm, where I was from. Yeah, it was just... That was an identity thing of wanting to know that half of, of your being... I also think at a cellular level cellular level um, that blood does matter like yeah. even though my mom I never felt like I was missing something and that's to her credit she never she decided to have me on her own mm-hmm. and she did not resent my dad for not being in the picture because of that and so she never put that on me like you're missing a dad I never mm-hmm. heard that I was missing anything, and I never felt that I was missing anything mm. because I had such a beautiful support network with my aunties. Yep. And then by the time I was eight, Bill, so who I never called dad either. Yep. But um, I didn't realize. But there was a yearning to know to have a father, to have a father figure mm-hmm. um, that I couldn't really put words around, but I felt. And I knew that because whenever I'd see him, I would just turn into a weeping mess out of the blue. Like, it would always shock me that I was... I, it was embarrassing. Yeah. Because I'd just start bawling as soon as I would see him. Um, you know, and so I guess I did need, you know, to know what that was like to, to be around him. And so was that a, the right decision, you felt like? Or especially after the fact that you went down there? Oh, amazing. Such a right... Such the right decision. It was yeah. super hard because... He, I moved in with him and his new wife. Oh, wow, you moved right in with him. Yeah, yes. who, and she was pregnant. And so I was a oh. new, I was, it was awkward. That, that and I wasn't awkward. really, it wasn't a welcoming environment. And my dad didn't Oof. know how to deal with it and, um, or me and all my emotions. So I quickly moved out and I found some roommates. Um, and so that was the loneliest era of my entire life. Oh. I mean, I was like, not just kind of a little bit lonely. I was like to my bones. Because you had met random roommate people down there. Yeah, in Los Angeles, giant city. I mean, I grew up in such a nurturing small town with tons of people around me telling me I was awesome all the time, and and then to Los Angeles, just super awkward, insecure, like not. So you were going. I was not a friend magnet. You were not a what? Friend magnet. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was probably really needy and annoying and just not someone people want. I mean, I was just in a bad place. Yeah. Um, I met one girl, her name was Jew, in Santa Monica City College, and she took me in, and her, she's um, both her and her sister are Korean, uh-huh. and they would take me in, and I just remember being in their apartment and feeling so happy because they would feed me amazing Korean food, and that was when I fell in love with Korean food, and she taught me to study. <laughs> I finally started to get good grades. Um, that's how I got into Sounds UCLA. Sounds like an influential friend. Yeah, she was amazing. So I did find friends, but I didn't really find my tribe for a long, long time. So what did you study at UCLA? Sociology. And then what, what led to eventually working 
what were the different steps then that led to 24-hour fitness? Because obviously that was a huge influence and turning point. Yeah, I I worked at the John Wooden Center, which is the college rec center, mm-hmm. uh, and enjoyed teaching group exercise there. I ended up te- um, being part of the teacher training team, teaching teachers to teach, which oh. I really enjoyed. And through that experience, I caught the attention of some of the administration at the John Wooden Center, and they mm-hmm. brought me to a, um, which I st- think still is around, called NURSA. It's a okay. national inter... Um, like rec center, college rec center mm-hmm. organization. Oh. And so I went, I got to go to my first conference, which was a big deal to mm-hmm. me at the time and learned that there's actually a career in running rec centers and oh. different departments within the rec center. Mm-hmm. And that's, I started to be interested in that as a potential career. And I won a graduate assistantship to the college of William and Mary, where I got my oh, yeah. master's, mm-hmm. um, in their college rec center. Uh, and I, I ran their fitness program there, got my master's, and then from there, um, instead of working in the university environment, I decided to try going out of, outside of the university environment and found a job at 24 Hour Fitness okay. after grad school. So I'm going to back up for a second. Like, were you athletic growing up? Were you... No. No? Mm-mm. So at what... So there, exactly. So where, at what point did... <laughs> Did I was super, fitness, I, athletics, okay, here, stuff come into your life? Okay, here are two things that people don't know about me. I don't like working out to this day. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, there's a big bombshell. <laughs> and I've never played a sport in my life. In my life. I, Fascinating. And, okay, and those of you listening who were on the cheerleading team with me, that was not a sport the way we did it. I was a cheerleader, but we were not athletic. <laughs> It's funny, our last guest, Faith Briggs, <laughs> talked about how her mother was a long-time cheerleader, but how they had this constant argument over whether it was a legit... It is now. And so that's why it <laughs> is now, but I promise you, in Eugene, Oregon, in the 80s, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't so physical, athletic. No. A lot of pom-pom we didn't even women. have a coach. We did not have a coach. Like, we were self-taught. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so exactly. So, how did if you are so adverse to this stuff? How did you start leading fitness classes for others? I, I, I'm just sort of a rebel. For one thing, sports, um, just never caught. I felt stupid doing sports. I it just wasn't for me. And I, I'm truly not competitive. Mm-hmm. Like you win, it's okay. You can win. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't have that like aggressive nature. Um, but I love moving. And I've always, my mom always says, you're so in your body. Like, I've always been really in my body, and I love moving, but I... You mean, like, present, mindful. Well, and I like moving. Like, I love dancing, but Mm -hmm. to my own rhythm, I hate choreography. Like, I did do step, tap, and jazz. Wait, step? No. Jazz, ballet, tap. Yeah. Um, And... But I hated the choreography. Like, I just wanted to put on the music and do my own tap dance, or Mm -hmm. do my own, you know, thing. And... The um, discipline of being uniform with everybody next to me always kind of drove me crazy. But mm-hmm. I loved being in a group moving. Mm-hmm. And I love music. I've always been very beat-driven. Um, and so I think that combination is what's led me to specifically Bar 3 because that is kind of our thing. It's 
we're going to guide an experience in the studio, mm-hmm. but you get to be your own best teacher. You get to move your body however it makes most sense to you today and honor what feels right and have joy in movement. The thing that I always rejected with sports and some of the other things is, um, for me, it just wasn't joyful. It was more of a chore and a discipline versus really enjoying being in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. But I'm, I'm hungry for more there. So basically, I'm just envisioning you. You're living in L.A. It's like tough times. You're lonely. You're, you know, you're not in this communal, small town sort of vibe anymore. Mm-hmm. So there was just an opportunity like, hey, we're looking for somebody to lead a fitness class. I started to, I found an aerobics class. So I did find, I did discover aerobics in Eugene with my mom. Well, we used to do Jane Fonda workouts in our living room. And then Mm -hmm. I would do some like step classes and high-low classes, they're called back then, Mm -hmm. um, in our our downtown athletic club in Eugene. So I did have that kind of like, this is fun. This is actually a fun way to exercise. And I did like the fact that fitness, um, promised to help you be more awesome. There was a result around fitness that was intriguing mm-hmm. to me because one thing that you know I saw back then that I wish I could you know go back and talk to my younger self about this, but that while I may not didn't may, while I, I didn't have great grades and I wasn't like successful on paper, I could look the part. I could look <laughs> successful, you know, um, and In what fitness. Way? Like being strong, um, badass, you know, um, physically. Like, so, yeah, look f- beautiful f- to be successful. Outward physicality that... Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think, I think all women have this um, measure of success that we are told from day one that our worth is in how we look. Our success is in how we look. And uh, that message, I think, looking back on it, I put a lot of eggs in those baskets, in that basket, because I didn't have a lot of confidence around education, mm-hmm. around my grades, um, around the way my family operated. Like we were not a traditional successful family with a two-car garage mm-hmm. and a normal family with, you know. So, so that was of interest to me. And when I went to LA, it it's so being looking the part is magnified in LA. <laughs> To this day, yeah. when I fly into LA, it is so off the hook important to look the part yep. in LA. And as a young woman, I was really a victim to that. Like, I just fell into that trap. Mm-hmm. And I was, of course, because of that, um, heavier in body and in spirit. Um, and I was seeking a way to get out of that and to, um, you know, be, be worthy, be attractive, be more beautiful so that I could have friends so that I could be liked, so that I could be successful. So you were working out yeah, and so doing a lot of these things for those reasons. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And But then that led me to find this incredible aerobics class in, um, oh, God, well, it was across town. I forget what part of town it was. Um, it was across town, and it was, it was a Nautilus gym at the time and it was primarily um black customers except for me um I was definitely the minority there and I freaking loved it the there was this woman named Donna who taught an aerobics class that lit me on fire and there was a (laughs) stage it was carpeted and the entire room would just like 
pulse when she was um, teaching and I would I would drive like 45 minutes to that class three times a week just to experience that group energy that connection um, which was you know that lit me on fire that was like okay well this is not only going to give me a good result because I bought into that formula it's also really fun and it, it, there's a sense of like energy that I'm getting from this kind of movement that I've never experienced before. So that's what what interests me about group exercise. Mm-hmm. And then when I entered UCLA, I found their group exercise program, and I quickly trained to be an instructor, and I became an instructor there. Cool. Um, so all that kind of tied in to my the beginnings of yes. why I'm doing what I'm doing now. So tell me about 24-hour fitness in those years. So that was after, yeah. Um, I moved to San Francisco because I wanted to live in San Francisco, and so 24 Hour Fitness is the job I found. It was kind of, it wasn't like my dream to work at 24 Hour Fitness, but Mm -hmm. it it happened um, out that way, and it was a great, amazing opportunity. I, when I started, um, I think we had about 25 gyms, and by the time I left, 11 years later, we had 430 globally. And I had been, I, had an opportunity to work in lots of different areas of the business and I for many years worked direct for the founder and CEO Mark Masteroff Mm -hmm. um, which is really exciting for me to be so close to the entrepreneur and vision behind such a successful company he continues to be um, a friend and um, mentor to me I was just texting him this morning actually Uh, and yeah so that's what brought me to 24 fitness and the evolution out of 24-Hour Fitness, because clearly what you created, Bar 3, is very different <laughs> than 24-Hour Fitness, sort of mm-hmm. uh, vibe-wise, at least. Yeah. You know, some of the criticisms of a place like 24-Hour Fitness is it's just sort of image-based, there's people sell supplements, it's just not, or, you know, it's not known to be as sort of mindful or a place. There's sort of a... It's more, it's all under one roof. It's a big box and it's, it's affordable Mm -hmm. and, um, it's traditional fitness. And when I learned so much about how to scale a business through the whole experience and I worked with really incredible people Mm -hmm. and I got to work with amazing, amazing agencies. So I learned Mm -hmm. a lot about how to build a brand. So there's so much of 24 fitness, my experience there that I will forever be grateful for, for me the product did not resonate with me. So even though I was working for 24 Hour Fitness, I didn't want to work Mm -hmm. out at 24 Hour Fitness. It felt lonely, for one thing. And back to Los Angeles, when I found group exercise, that helped me fight lonely. I think more importantly than it made me sweat and maybe lose weight and get more toned, the secret ingredient to my health and well-being was that Mm -hmm. I wasn't lonely anymore. And I don't think I could have articulated that even when we first started Bar 3, but that has always informed my decisions, mm-hmm. that relationships are just as healthy as exercise. And fighting lonely is just as important as building muscle, getting a good sweaty workout, and you know finding your edge and physically. So at 24 Hour Fitness, it's a big gym, and I, we sold the before and after picture. And to this day, that still sells. That is the thing that works and sells. Like literally a before and after picture. Yeah. And that idea that 
basically when you come and do fitness, you're going to be a better version of yourself afterwards. Yeah. And but visual, largely visually. Yeah. Because you're showing them that picture. An external measure of success. Yeah. And specifically for women, men too, but specifically for women because, again, we are measured by an external look and ideal. Women are born into it. We're all born into what is sexy, what is worthy, what is successful as a, mm-hmm. as a woman. And um, now it's okay to be curvy, but you need to be curvy in the right ways. <laughs> like your curves need to be here and here, not there and there, right? There's these ridiculous... Um, you know, pictures that we're all trying to reach that um, set all of us up for failure. Mm-hmm. And when you look at fitness, a lot of fitness to this day is sold based on you're not enough as you are right now. And in order to really be successful, you need to change. And fitness is the answer. And then it's backed by science. Mm-hmm. And it truly is. Like, if you yeah. want to lose weight, it's energy in, energy out. You eat these many calories and balance it by these many calories. You're expending build muscle because that burns more calories, um, and that's been proven. That's a, mm-hmm. you know that's data driven. Um, and then there's all these formulas that were to follow, like exercise for at least 30 minutes with your heart rate up at least this much, mm-hmm. and then get your heart rate up and then down, like the hit training and all these things. And there's all these formulas to be better, mm-hmm. and they certainly work there. Obviously, like that's how athletes win the race. Mm-hmm. That's how athletes do incredible feats, you know. Um, so there's nothing wrong with external measures of success, but I think we we've it's too extreme. That's all we focused on, and we forgot about the whole so it's inner. All about the destination, not the journey. Yeah. Type deal. Yeah, and that takes us out of being present. So when you buy a twenty four hour fitness membership, let's just say to get to the after. Already, your mind is in the after versus being present. And I had memory. I have memories of being on the treadmill, for example, and like with a goal of I need to work out for thirty minutes, and any more than that is even better. Like the more minutes I work out, the better. And the longer or harder I run, the more successful I am as a human being, mm-hmm. and closer I am to that after. Which when, once I get to the after, then I'm awesome. I'm not awesome right now, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of the idea. And so I would get on the treadmill and do everything I could to get my mind off of the fact that I was running. I'd watch TV, listen to music, count the calories, watch that that time clock kind of tick down so I could check that box and move on. That whole mindset makes fitness a chore. It's not actually enjoyable, and it's not being in our body in the moment, and that, that, that bothered me. Um, so that was part of the motivation for starting Bar 3 is what if we could create a fitness company around a new mindset and redefine what success in fitness means. So instead of taking a class at Bar 3 to um, get ready for bikini season or to get ready for my wedding um, or just as a measure of success, take a class at Bar 3 to be present in the moment in my body as it is right now and let go, untether myself from a result, and move for the sake of moving, and for the sake of being connected with other people. And um, some days that might mean moving for 60 minutes and not feeling really good in your body, but being honest about that and not trying to push that away. Actually investigate it and look at it. Like, wow, I don't feel balanced today. I'm really struggling more today than I did yesterday. Um, My energy's really low, my head's really foggy. Um, my wrists hurt, my knees hurt, my 
you know, all those things, actually look at that without judgment. Um, you know, instead of in the, in the past in fitness, when I felt those ways, I would just immediately feel like a failure, like there was something wrong with me, instead of accepting it. Um, so that, that is, that's where I think fitness is broken and where we're working to solve through bar three. Great. Thank you for your work. It's much needed. I think one thing to clarify quickly is what <laughs> bar is exactly. Because mm -hmm. bar three is the brand you've created, but bar is a style of working out. So mm -hmm. could you give us the little elevator pitch on what an actual bar, what bar style means? Sure. Uh, it's a lot like yoga. So if you were to ask me, what does yoga mean? Think about all the different kinds of yoga. Okay. It's confusing. Yep. <laughs> there's yin yoga, there's flow yoga, mm -hmm. there's kundalini yoga, there's, there's um, yingar yoga, there is um, Byron Baptiste power yoga, there's Bikram yoga. Mm -hmm. All of those yogas are, are very, very different. Um, and that is true for bar too. I would say that most bar classes, what we share in common is a ballet bar okay. as a prop, mm -hmm. uh, music driven, mm -hmm. smallish group, so around 25 people, um, predominantly women mm -hmm. right now, and almost all bar that I know of, although there's now cardio bar and there, there's all kinds of different ones. Um, mm -hmm have an isometric component to it where you mm -hmm. hold your body like a yangar yoga you get in a posture and you hold it okay. and you tax the muscle at its deepest kind of contraction mm -hmm. and you hold it there and then from there once you're in alignment you move small a small range of motion mm -hmm. to further tax the muscle and all the stabilizers at the joint okay. and that's when your body starts to shake um, because um, you're you're basically breaking down and building, breaking down and building. That is consistent with a lot of bar classes. Okay. Uh, bar three is a full body balance workout and we combine strength tra training, strength conditioning, cardio and mindfulness all in one. So we do that isometric work, we do the small range, but we also mm -hmm. do full range functional movement. Okay. And the entire class is about being mindful and present in the moment and being at home and safe in your body just as it is. So the actual creator of, there was one person who created the style back in the day? Lottie Burke was a woman who lived in London and she was a dancer, okay. injured herself in a car accident and rehabbed herself with some physical therapists at a ballet bar and okay. created the first version of bar uh -huh. that was brought to New York City in the 90s. And the original kind of bar, uh, Lottie Burke, some of the original Lottie Burke students started some of the first bar studios. Okay. Um, Burr Leonard for, from Bar Method um, and oh my gosh, uh, the Physique 57 <laughs> women and um, the people who started Core Fusion they all were part of that okay. original. And they are more and um, I would even include Daily Method into this and Pure Bar into this, they are more attached to that lineage than I am. Mm -hmm. I'm the least. I, in fact, I have very little Lottie Burke into in my okay. in my classes. So you've made it, made the style more of your own. Completely different, okay. in a true rebel nature. Of course, of course, wouldn't kid, expect anything else. Yeah. <laughs> and how much of your love of dancing did your love of, of moving your body and getting crazy, um, 
lead you to bar at all, given that there was some dance history in bar, or is that just a coincidence? There's no dance in bar. I mean, just given that that was, uh, Lottie Burke was a dancer. Well, I think that is a, um, yeah, because there's a ballet bar, people think it's ballet, or there's choreography Mm -hmm. or dance, and there really isn't in any of the bar programs. Um, And I like that because there's no choreography, and that a lot of people feel silly dancing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but we have our, you know, it's kind of, yeah, we have our moments where you can really drive into the beat and feel the music, but it's still um, structured enough that you don't feel silly. It's not a free dance program. And so you mentioned a moment ago that uh, most of the uh, participants of these classes are women. Mm-hmm. So I actually went to my first a little while ago, and I held true. I was the only guy out of 25 why do you think that is? If you had to try to put a theory out there, what would you say? Well, even like yoga for a long time was predominantly women here in the States, Western yoga. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time for men to kind of find it and, and get comfortable with it. But it, you add a ballet bar into the mix, and that definitely... So is, just that connotation, even though you don't yeah. even use it all that much sometimes. Yeah, and the Lottie Burkmore methodology is a little more balletic than what we do mm-hmm. uh, more and more men are coming to bar three because we have online workouts at home and I think they're being exposed to it uh-huh. and realizing that it's so good cross training it's it's really challenging as you know mm-hmm. it's a deep muscle burn and um, but it also feels good in your body which as we age is so important and a lot the, I would say the men that do come are athletes mm-hmm. we have NBA basketball players who come we have cyclists a lot of runners um, soccer, a lot of, um, in fact, Audrey's coach, soccer coach, um, my daughter's soccer coach is coming now religiously. So it is, um, the athletes, I think, really respond well to it. Okay. So there's sort of two stereotypes. One is that it's all women, which is somewhat true, but changing. And the other is that it's all sort of affluent white women. Mm-hmm. So you, when we met before, you mentioned that somebody had used the expression that you were a wealthy white woman in wellness. WWW. WWW. Yeah, Um, I'm very self-aware about that, and it's something that we're actively working on. Our top core value is everybody matters, and diversity matters for our health and well-being. It is just as healthy to be in a room of diversity and diverse perspectives as it is to exercise. And um, we need it. All of us need it. And again, it's fighting lonely. There's nothing more lonely than being the only person in the room that's a male, right? You felt it. There's a sense of being lonely in that, right? Alone in that experience. And the boutique fitness industry in general and wellness in general is white mm-hmm. and affluent. And we need to make a change. And Portland, of course, is Portland lacking is in a lot of diversity. It, it actually, we are a diverse, if you look at the overall Portland area, but in leadership, we are white. And that bothers me. Uh, and I want to make a change. I want to make a, you know, a concerted effort, an intentional effort to raise diversity um, within Bar 3, but also um, within the city. And I have some really great friends who have inspired me and have taught me a lot about this. And one of them is Ryan Buchanan, mm-hmm. who lives here locally. And 
he started and part of a group called Eli, which is Emerging Leaders Internship Program, where and we've signed on as one of the companies as an example mm-hmm. of an action we're taking. Where every summer we we onboard an intern um, of color, and he or she is in a high level. Um, mentorship program of leadership. So this isn't an intern who's making copies or mm-hmm. you know doing these type things. They're actually we're raising a diverse um, new generation of leaders here in Portland, and a bunch of the companies here in Portland have signed on to do this. Uh, and it's something that we're looking at at Bar Three as well is how can we invite more diversity into our company and. It's more than just inviting it in. It's like, why Why isn't it already that way? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Because I am very aware that I'm in that category of a wealthy white woman in wellness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm seeking people who can help me and identify where my blind spots are and how we can truly create an inclusive environment that's inspiring and, um, and truly healthy and whole. I think a lot of these things are issues because of the lack of representation so if you don't see somebody who looks like you doing something even if they are doing it if you don't see those images out there you're not going to think that x person does that whatever um so i was actually i wanted to say i was quite impressed and surprised that the class i went to of course i was expecting to be the probably the only guy but i was also expecting like the stereotype said to have everyone be all the ladies be wealthy and single moms right in the pearl there so we were in the pearl one of the sort of affluent very white neighborhoods in portland and i was shocked that actually it was diverse in a lot of ways that i wasn't expecting age-wise body type-wise fitness level and actual ethnic diversity so i think it goes to show that it's easy to we're making progress you're making progress i think portland has to be any city that is has such a population increase, you would hope that there's some amount of diversity coming in. Yeah. And you mentioned before, so Portland is changing. Population mm-hmm. is sort of one of the easiest markers of that change. But how do you see Portland changing as a city, culturally? Well, I mean, it's growing really rapidly. It's one of the fast top 10 growing markets in the states um so people are moving in which is great but we are building at a rapid rate and um i think the most important thing that we all need to focus on is protecting economic diversity as well and creating you know um neighborhoods of economic diversity Mm-hmm. Uh, and and making sure that people who you know one of the things defining features of Portland for example is food mm-hmm. and our love of you know re- people who genuinely care about food and about preparation of food and um, where it comes from and the art of making an amazing cocktail even you know and that true passion but if those jobs become um, if as as the price of living here increases. Those jobs will push those people out. They'll all move to Eugene, which is <laughs> yeah, happening. Yeah. Eugene is going to be the next Portland. I know it um, yeah. because uh, a lot of people can't afford to live here. And There's a housing crisis essentially. Oh yeah, yeah. it's that's <laughs> it the things. Bay Area. Yeah. 
Yeah. When Chris and I lived in San Francisco, San Francisco is such a different place than it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and so I, I do think that we all need to be really aware of that and, and build in a way that allows this, this town to truly thrive and have a healthy ecosystem. One of the things that is most impressive to me about Bar 3 is that you've you've created this franchise structure, but you're very deliberate about not referring to them as franchises. It's all sort of this extended family, and it was really neat to hear the way you talked about these each of the owners of these different places and how much you care about them and how gratifying it is for you to see them take the reins on something and make it their own so it's still bar three but they put their own spin on it and mm -hmm. um so i think that's that's really neat so i'd love to hear just sort of your because you got all this experience scaling things from 24-hour fitness but then how you sort of ensured that they weren't just franchises that they were actually part uh, of a family oh my gosh my friend all the franchisees work their asses off it is hard work to have a studio it's good hard work, but it is hard work. And I just admire every single person uh, who has decided to put their money into this business and, and their um, sweat equity into building um, something bigger than their community because that's why you franchise, cool. at least at Bar 3. You sign on to be an owner at Bar 3 because you want to be something bigger, um, be a part of something bigger. And we, this is not just a quick buck. <laughs> no, I mean it's hard work, and we yeah. take it. We give so generously, day after day after day. Teaching, taking care of clients' bodies is such a personal thing. Mm -hmm. um, taking care of their babies, we have childcare in every one of our studios, and for your employees. Um, well, we mostly for clients, but our employees do. Yep, yep. Um, so, new parents can get an hour workout in while their babies are taken oh. care of. Uh, and then creating a safe place where people ha can build relationships and plug in and not be lonely anymore and feel really connected and inspired by their community. That all takes a lot of intentionality and a lot of work. And um, for me, franchising is the best way to do that because I know that they're in it the same way I am and we're a partner in that. And the other thing that we're all doing together is really shifting a mindset. And it's a movement. We're more than a company. We really are a movement. We are trying to redefine what success in fitness means. So success is not about getting there anymore. It's about being at home in our sa and safe in our bodies as they are. Um, and that takes a lot of people doing the same thing every day to reset, help, rethink fitness. Mm -hmm. um, because I do believe we've all been brainwashed. And what's interesting is that it's not working. Fitness in general is not working. Um, obesity has doubled globally since the 80s. Mm -hmm. Doubled. Our fitness industry is has is booming since the 80s. So there, there's a disconnect there. Yeah. Even though fitness is growing rapidly, and it has since we basically invented it in the 80s, every our health is seriously on the decline. Not just a little bit on the decline, like... In, um, significantly declining and obesity um, lifestyle illness uh, including diabetes too um, not to mention stress anxiety um, and all these other things that are taking us down um, are a problem and so 
I think all of us in fitness need to look at that carefully, carefully, mm-hmm. and figure out how we're going to reshape what it means to be healthy and what it means to be fit. To be fit. You said you're still in touch with Mark Mastrov. Mm-hmm. Given that you see some of the potential ills in the sort of typical style of fitness in America, do you I ever... don't think I don't think <laughs> fitness is the problem necessarily. So. It is not a problem to be on a treadmill working out. It is not a problem to go to 24 Fitness. 24 Fitness is a beautiful thing, and it's getting people healthy. The problem is the mindset around fitness and societal messages around what it is to be fit and what it is to be successful and what it is to be healthy. So I don't think the actual act of working out at 24 Fitness, and I think all the team there, the intentions are right, but we just need to change... um, and it's happening. It's already happening. There's there's definitely a movement. We we need to change the way we're relating to fitness and our relationship with fitness. Mm-hmm. So it's no longer a chore. It's something that is an integrated part of our lives that we truly enjoy doing. And I think that anybody in fitness, we can all come together to do that. So you have a daughter. And a son. And a son. And two dogs. And two dogs. Very nice. <laughs> and a husband. And a husband. He's always last. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> so you own, you were the co-owner and CEO, so you're the co-own Bar 3 with your husband? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How's that? How's working so closely with a, with a partner? you enjoy that? I do. I enjoy it very much. It's a lot of work. Uh, we um, respect each other a great deal. And we uh, respect how we're different. We have clear boundaries around our roles in the company. Chris operates and runs Bar 3. And he really is a huge part uh, of, you know, the team. I'm, I'm more of the public figure, so I think I'm out there more in the world and people know more about me. But he is running the company. I mean, he's an incredible leader. He's a... Um, a softer leader than I am. He listens. Um, he's more consultative, uh, very analytical, and um, empowering. He he's really he trusts and empowers our team in a beautiful way. Uh, he so he's basically he's the COO, so he operates the company. I'm CEO, mm-hmm. and I would say more on the I'm, I joke that instead of chief executive officer, I'm chief energy officer. I energize ideas and concepts. I make connections. Um, I'm more on the product and brand side of things. So we have a clear, distinct separation, which which helps our marriage <laughs> and our relationship at work, too. And so I'd imagine the headquarters here is like a family as well. I wouldn't say we're a family. Okay. I learned that early on that that doesn't work. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, but we are a tribe, and we have mutual respect. Because families would be too close? <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Well, it's just not... It's not what it is. Family oh, yeah. is different than work. Oh, yeah. um, but that, that what's, what's, what we share in common with family mm-hmm. is that all of us um, in the home office at Bar 3, um, it's very important for us to have mutual respect, transparency, to be able to fail in front of each other, mm-hmm. resilience, and um, a lot of communication. So we work on, on that a lot so that we're a happy you know, we can create what we call workplace awesomeness. Yes. And raising your kids in this sort of crazy world, especially the current climate and 
sort of the Me Too movement, and clearly you're you've created something that is is very empowering for women and like women creating relationships with, with other women. So, how do you sort of uh, steer your daughter in this sort of changing world? Clearly, there's a lot of female empowerment that you're focused on. Do you see her responding to that using you as an example and what you've created as an example? I, I, um, I think the most important thing that I've learned about parenting is it's not what you say, it's what you do. How I show up every day is, is going to parent more than me setting structure or rules or what school she goes to or, you know, all the things that we think we can control with our children, um, that the real impression and is about how I show up and I, I mess up all the time in front of her and I'll tell her, you know, I'm, you know, I messed up and here's how I'm trying to fix it. And I think that, that I'm hoping that'll serve her to see that she has a mom out there doing her best to lead in a very female way a very yen, like yen way, if you will. Mm-hmm. I'm, um, yeah. So, but Audrey is steering her own life, and it's beautiful to see. She just turned 15 yesterday. She goes to St. Mary's, which is an all-girls school. Yeah. She chose that um, school for herself, and she's learning her way in the world on her own two feet in her own way. That's very different for me. She's a total athlete, for example. <laughs> she amazes me. She's a really good student. <laughs> Two things that I did not have going for me at her age. Um, but I am, I am, I would say that she is absolutely what motivates me to create a, a future where all women can have a voice and stand up for themselves, have equity in, in the workplace and be safe and at home in their bodies. That is what I want for her and her generation and generations after. So there's tons more to talk about, but our time is running out, so we'll have to have you back for another visit sometime. Uh, I'd like to finish, though, by asking the question that we ask all our guests is, what advice would you give? So maybe to your daughter, to young people, to anyone who's trying to find their way, who has yet to maybe act upon their dreams or, or follow their passions, whatever. What uh, what would you say to those people? Obviously, your path was was not always direct. It was here and there until you found, created this absolutely amazing thing you've created. So what would you tell someone? I would say to look inside for answers, and that's not easy because we're taught to look outside for answers. Uh, and to develop a practice around that and everybody's different but a really simple one is to close your eyes take several deep deep breaths place one hand on your heart one hand on your belly and look inside your body and just notice how you feel just to get grounded in your body and repeat a mantra that um i already have the answers i already have the answers i already have the answers and just trust your inner knowing and um, you'd be surprised what happens when you do that. Cool. Great advice. I, I got to try it myself. Well, thank you so much. You're hugely inspirational, and um, it's amazing you've chose to create what you did starting here in Portland and 
moving beyond. So thank you so much. You're really welcome. appreciate you being here today. Thanks for the cup of coffee. Oh, of course. And the scone. Don't forget. Yeah, that was a good scone for sure. All right. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. This wraps up another edition of the Get After It PDX podcast. For more information about today's guest, including social media links, please check out the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening. Now it's your turn to get out there and get after it.